The following conversation is an Audible archive, recorded with David and Benjamin Abramowitz, April 6, 2017. Start talking? Yeah, you can start. Can we start officially? Yeah. Okay. We're here today to talk to Ben Abramowitz, my father, about his experiences in Vietnam, both tours. Hey, Dad, I'd like to first start out with before you went to Vietnam, how did you find out you were going to Vietnam? Who told you? I got orders. It came through the, uh, the mechanism, the uh, the agent called me up and said, you got orders. He gave them to me. I was in Germany. So he didn't question whether you can go or go. He said you are going. Yeah, career, uh, the career management didn't uh, give me a choice. And what were the dates you left and when you came back? Well, I guess we left Germany in probably May. And then I, they gave me 30 days leave en route. And I left uh, you and your mother and brothers in uh, Kansas City and uh, I headed uh, for Vietnam and I got there in June I remember and I had orders as adjutant of the 11th aviation group that was on my orders so you knew you knew when you got to Vietnam and where was 11th aviation group at headquarters they were at An in Vietnam okay and uh, I was uh, wait before you get to that how did you tell mom and us that you were going to Vietnam? I just remember? Came and told you. I mean, it was not. It was not like an emotional minute where I had a meeting. It was uh, army stuff. And you both, all of us, went to uh, Kansas City. You got a place, right? And then you end up leaving. Yeah, I left. And then, me. how did you get to Vietnam? You took off from Kansas City, and I then went, went to went. San Francisco. Okay. And then uh, checked in at uh, Travis. And uh, got on an airplane, and they took me to Vietnam. Direct before your Vietnam, before you went to Vietnam, what was your, what was your thoughts about the Vietnam War? Did you have any thoughts about it? No, but I, before I went to Germany, I went through the advanced course, and I was aware of Vietnam because it was really cranking up. <clears throat> I went to the advanced course between uh, '62 and '63, so it was really cranking up. Uh, I had read Street Without Joy. I really didn't have any. Feelings, right war, wrong war, any of that. It was my job. That's that's what it was. It was not. Uh, I didn't think about it. So you arrived in. Uh, you you arrived in Vietnam, and how were you dressed? In well, I arrived in pleiku, and uh, we were. The army is not capable of doing anything in moderation, so they had us dressed in class A's, which was really stupid. Right. And I got off the plane into a mud hole in pleiku, so there I was in my class A's. And uh, then somebody, liaison person, picked me up, put me in a helicopter, and took me over to... And you were in class A's when you got in the helicopter? Yeah. Or did I you was, switch? I you was, no, I didn't switch. Okay. Uh, so you didn't get it at Play Coup. Once you got to Anke, yeah. that's that's where you got all your equipment. Yeah. yeah I, and your, the, what they call BDU? What were they called? Fatigues. Jungle, yeah, well, regular fatigues in 19... Uh, 1966. Did you ever wear Class A's ever again? No, never. I threw them in a duffel bag and they got mildew. <laughs> okay. Well, when you first got there, you went to the 11th Aviation Group. What did you do? Well, I signed in. Right, I know But that. I, I got to give you a thing. Remember, 
I put in to get relieved from flying duties in 1965. Right. I was on ground duty at the time. And I had been flying for eight years. But what happened with the buildup, I was just became a major, just before I, I got promoted to major, there were Army aviator majors all over the place and nobody had any jobs. They were all just pilots. And I wanted to be, you know, a job calling for my grade and everything, so I made that choice. In fact, the head of aviation career management wrote me, wrote me back and he said, you know, I've often thought of doing the same thing. But anyway, uh, so I went as adjutant to the 11th Aviation Group because they wanted an aviator who wasn't flying so to handle the personnel thing. And you were there doing that experience for three months? Three, three and a half months. And it was interesting, when I got to Vietnam, they had an unwritten rule there that during the last 30 days Navy was there, he didn't fly the purpose so he wouldn't get killed, I guess, or yeah. wounded. But you can't run a replacement system where you do 11-month tour, but replacements come in on a 12-month basis. So I had to I had to get that changed. And it was difficult, but I got it done. So you got to play Q. Where did you go from there to become the... Don K. So that's where you were for three yeah, months. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Any stories for those three months? Oh, yeah. Who was your boss and guy, how did he treat you? A guy you? named... Uh, uh, Lukens was my boss, Colonel uh, uh, Lukens, who uh, was a PhD in physics, and uh, he had been Army aviator a long time. I mean, from way back in the 40s. And uh, he was a good commander, but he wasn't, you know, I was actually his adjutant plus his exo, because we didn't have an exo. Uh, one incident we ran into was uh, one of our battalion commanders moved. One left, one moved from uh, the 229th uh, Helicopter Battalion, which was a Huey lift battalion, uh, to the 9th Cavalry. And uh, he needed a replacement. So our S3 was a guy named Lieutenant Colonel Jim Hamlet, who happened to be my roommate. Mm -hmm. And he had been the S3. Uh, Jim Hamlet was African-American. Right. So uh, Lucan said, who do you think should be battalion commander? I said, uh, Colonel Hamlet. I was a major, and he said, uh, he said, okay, and he went to see the assistant division commander, and he came back and said to me, the 1st Cavalry is not going to have any, and he used the N-word, battalion yeah. commanders, and I said, that's acceptable. you got to talk to the division commander, so he went to see General Jack Norton. And it was unacceptable, you meant. Yeah, unacceptable, yeah. and uh, General Norton gave Hamlet that... Uh, that battalion, Hamlet ended up, uh, at the end of his career, was a major general, commanding the 4th Division. Did General Hamlet ever know that the... Uh... I don't think he knew that, but he always, he always when in my second tour, when he commanded the, the 1st Cavalry Brigade and we were surrounded, he, he made sure uh, that when my D-Rose came up, I had to stay 10 extra days, he got me out of there and he invited me down to his headquarters and that kind of thing. So he... Uh, even uh, through, even after, he remained a good friend. Uh, but I his, never told him that story. Yeah. During the three months that you were the uh, adjutant, did you have people come across your desk that you knew that they were going to tough assignments? Oh, well, I or, was the guy that was assigning them. Right. That's right. I had a guy who was my uh, squad leader, Virginia Tech, who was really a tough bird. And he came in, I said, do you think I ought to sign him to the 9th Cavalry or not? So... But I did. I got him a good... Was that the hardest assignment, 9th Cavalry? 
Well, was that, that was the one a, that had more deaths or injuries? Well, I don't know, but they were, you know, they they flew the uh, they used the pink team with the uh, with the loaches, uh, the, yeah. the observation helicopters finding the enemy got shot at, and then the gunships came in, and then uh, the rifle platoon came in after them. So it was uh, not like a lift battalion. What was the best experience during those three months? Any any story that resonates before you went to your next assignment? Well, what was what was what was good is I had a commander who listened to me, the brigade and, commander. No, our group commander wasn't group a brigade commander, yeah. at that time. He listened to me. Uh, sometimes he took my recommendations, didn't, but he listened. Uh, and uh, and I spent uh, time uh, uh, at the battalions. I would go down and and uh, uh, just talk to soldiers and, and talk to commanders and talk to aviators and sort of get the pulse of the unit. And I was very close to uh, Division G1 with respect to that. And that's how I got my next job. I well, I'll get to myself. that. Here, how were the, how's the morale of the soldiers that you saw from the enlisted to the officers during those three months? All good. All so good. you didn't know negativity? No. You, know, fra- you always hear about fracking and no. fracking and things no. like that. Nothing. No. So and the, People and the, did their job. And the experience of the Vietnam War wasn't as negative as sub- subsequent years came. Well, of course, when I was, it was a little different when I was with the 1st and 5th Cavalry, but with the aviation group, I I didn't come into that kind of contact with that stuff. During those three months, how did you eat, eating-wise? We had a mess hall. I mean, you just ate at the mess hall? Yeah, I ate at the mess hall. Did you eat lunch, dinner, and Yeah, it was right there. There was no place to go. Uh, Did you ever go during those three months, did you ever have a day off? Or did you work no, straight? No, you, you worked straight. Whatever it took. There, there was no other game in town. So but we did have our main mission. Main mission, wrong word. Colonel Lukens wanted to build a place called the Red Hawk Inn, which was an officer's club. And that became a focus. So here we are in the middle of the war, and everybody is carrying rocks to build. And it was a beautiful place, but it was just kind of, you know, and, and I guess it was a good way to take everybody's mind off what they were doing. What it was is a bar. Hmm. How often during those three months or during the whole year did you keep in touch with mom or family? I wrote her every day. Ma- what about us, the boys? I don't remember. I know I wrote you, but I, I don't. But I wrote your mother every day. Every. Did you ever talk to her on the phone? No. My first year? No. no. I don't think so. No, no, my first tour. The only time I talked to her was... Uh, when my when my father died, I got a, I got I want, had a I got a call through. When did your father pass? That was uh, in uh, uh, March in 1967. So you're the XO at the time of a battalion. Yeah. 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 And and uh, how did you find out about your father passing? I got a call from uh, my adjutant. We were in a firefight actually, and I got a call from the adjutant, and he was kind of hemming and hawing. And I said, my father died. And he said, that's right. Did you come right out? That's what I said. No, I mean, did you, they let you leave right away? No, what I did was, again, Jim Hamlet was commanding the 227th that was our support battalion. Uh, they gave me an emergency leave, and they uh, and uh, uh, Colonel Mapp, my battalion commander, let me go. And they gave me two weeks, whatever I needed. And he... Um, Hamlet sent a helicopter, picked me up right to Sansanut, and I was on a plane back to San Francisco and then to New Jersey. And you, who? I who did was, call 
your mother and tell her I was coming home. But I said, as a matter of fact, I wasn't sure what was, you know, going on, you know, because of the flights and everything. And I told her, if time was running out, I, I said, go ahead and do the funeral because I don't know what my schedule is. So you were there for the funeral. Did mom and the boys, did I go? No, no, no just your mother. So mom, mom went? Yeah. Who watched us, Bobby? I guess, and Aunt Vicky. Okay, so you went to the funeral. You did the funeral. Then I came back to Kansas City with your mother, and I so spent you saw a few us. days. Yeah, and then I, then I flew back. Okay. And uh, and uh, Jim Mapp did not give away my position. See, I went back. This is in March. I'm due to rotate in June, so I wanted to make sure I got credit for that tour. Do you do you you you've talked about several times that Grandpa was reading a letter from you when he passed? Yeah, he was. Do you what was do you do you still have that letter? Uh, it's someplace. I know it's home. You think it's at home somewhere? It's, it's home, yeah. And that and that was. Grant, do you remember anything about the note, or just an average? Yeah. Note? It, it, uh, again, remember we just got that note from uh, uh, Sergeant Macklin. Yeah. The the email you talked to him is in California. Oh yeah 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 yeah. yeah. After fifty years, he wrote me. He said, "Been looking for me to yeah. thank me." Well, actually, I got a Bronze Star with V-Device that night, the same night of that fight. That was the night that yeah, you got it? Yeah, uh, I think one of the soldiers put me in for it. I don't think it was him, but somebody did. Yeah. And uh, my father was reading a letter where I was told him, told him about this award when he died. Uh, we'll get to it now, even yeah. though I would go to it since you brought it up. Tell me about that night that you got the Bronze Star, which was the the, the highest Bronze Star would be the highest award you received. Um, we were at a, uh, a landing zone, English Firebase, English, and uh, the which is where uh, that was in uh, near the South China Sea in Central Vietnam. Do you know the town? There was no town. Okay, it was just okay. Okay, and uh, the battalion was there, and uh, Colonel Mapp took all the rifle companies four of them out and they were in an operation in the uh, Ashau Valley or someplace out there. Uh, they, we had some intelligence, they were after them. And that night I was, uh, or that, for a couple of days, I was there with, uh, they left all our heavy weapons. We never carried a lot of heavy weapons like mortars and stuff like that. Plus I had uh, some cooks and uh, some uh, 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 logistics people back with me, and I set up a perimeter. So all the combat power was away. Yeah, well, that was. They away. were patrolling, doing their thing, uh, yeah. and you were just setting a patrol uh, base with the trains, with the train, uh, which which for for layman's term, uh, that's cooks and the people logistics. maintenance and stuff yeah. like that. How many people? Probably fifty. How many people were in the battalion total? Well, about five hundred. So most of them were out oh, of the yeah, bush. They were all out. So you were there, and then that unit, once they finished whatever, would come back. Yeah, to the that's trials. right. That's right. Okay, so or what, we would go someplace else. So you're you're pulling security. Yeah. What time did the enemy attack? Well, I set I, I, I set up a perimeter, and, and we did have a lot of heavy weapons. I had uh, fifty caliber machine guns from the cooks, and all. I had uh, mortars, mortars, and I had uh, I had the stuff I needed, and uh, and you had enough ammunition. Yeah, ammunition plenty, plenty ammunition because we provided the ammunition. Okay, gotcha. So anyway, uh, so uh, they um, they attacked probably about eleven o'clock at night, and uh, so we, you were sleeping at the time. Yeah, but okay. not everybody was sleeping. Right. Uh, they attacked. They mortared us, and uh, at that point, uh, I went to the mortar crew. We set it up, and we started some counterfire. 
we really didn't know where they were, but evidently we knocked out about three of their positions and they stopped. Uh, we didn't have any casualties and uh, the enemy left. Did the enemy have any casualties yes, you saw afterwards? As far as I know, but I, I mean, I didn't count them, but they were there. I saw them. You saw, okay. And uh, so that was out of the year you were there in the Vietnam first tour. Was that the roughest night you had? Yeah, but I, uh, again, uh, what I what I did was, uh, I would, my job as the EXO was to be where if something happened to the battalion commander, I could take over. Right. That was my job. And it was my job to place myself there. I didn't ask him. Right. He didn't tell me, whatever. But what I would do occasionally, I'd say, I want to go out with C Company today, and i go out on an operation with them for two or three days. Well, I'll get to that. You're now the, you're now the G1. You're now the uh, adjutant yeah. S1 of the 11th Aviation Group. Right. And then, when did you find out that you were moving on to go become the XO? Well, that's funny. And how did that work? I coordinated with the Division G1. I went. I didn't tell my group commander. He knew what I wanted to do. Did he think we were going to be there a whole year? Uh, he didn't want to lose me. That's okay. for sure. And when I came back. And I took, got an interview with Bob Sechrist, who was the battalion commander, he accepted me. So I, uh, what I did was, I went to Colonel Luke and said, I got some good news. And then I told him, and I said, by the way, my replacement's gonna be this guy. <laughs> I don't forget who that was. How long was the replacement with you before you left? How many I days? I had him studying under me for three weeks. That long? Two weeks, three weeks, who remember? And then you end up going to where? First of the 5th Cavalry. And who was the battalion commander? A guy named Bob Sechrist. And that is a story in itself. When I arrived, I got off the helicopter. And uh, I was taken over as the uh, battalion exec. How, how tall were you and how much weight did you weigh? When I got there, I probably weighed 225. I was 6'4". 6'4", okay. But anyway, so I got off the helicopter. And Sechrist comes up to me and says, I want you to go to C Company. It was during a stand-down. This and was I'm, the first day you showed first, up? No, the first 10 minutes I showed up. Did he even know you? Did you know yeah, him no, at all? No, I had interviewed with him. He accepted me. What, when did you interview? I went and saw him. He might have been a base camp, whatever. Oh, while you were the Yeah, uh, I was the uh, only XO or S3 mm -hmm. in the division that wasn't a Commander General Staff College graduate. Were you, was this the only person you interviewed with? That's the only person. And then once he said yes, which was right that away. Was it. Then okay. I let, informed my group commander. So do you show up? Now, where was it again? I'm sorry. Where was the, the LZ English. And an, That's where you went. Okay. One of the, I forget the landing zone, but it, it was out in the bush. Sometime. How long of, uh, of a flight was it from where you oh, were? Oh, no, it was 40 minutes, maybe 30 minutes, not far. So you get there. He says hello, and go ahead. Yeah, he said... Uh, your first job is to go out and relieve Captain Lowry, commander of C Company. And uh, I'm thinking, I said, that's your job to relieve him. That's not mine. I'm not the commander. But he sends me, he says, get on this helicopter and go relieve Lowry. And I said, why? He said, he had, we were on a stand down at the time. You know, one of these 10 minute, two day truces type thing. And uh, I went to, uh, uh, I said, why? He said, well, he, Two of his men drowned in the South China Sea. So I got in a helicopter, went down there. Bob Lowry reports to me. And I said, what happened? He says, well, I put out my security. 
I briefed everybody, I had lifeguards, but these two guys didn't listen and they went out, got swept up by an undertow and are gone. Yeah. So it sounded reasonable to me, so I didn't relieve them, I got back on a helicopter. I've been with this unit three days, no, one day. Yeah. And I went back and Secrets meets me, he says, where's Larry? I said, I didn't relieve him. And at least he gave me a chance to talk and he says, I told you to relieve him. Why didn't you? And I, I said, look, uh, I said, I told him what Larry told me, and I said, he said, well, he didn't ask my permission. <laughs> and I said, uh, Colonel, I said, every day he goes on combat operations, uh, does ambushes, does all this stuff, patrols, whatever. He never asked your permission, and he's in harm's way. He made that decision. He said, well, he didn't ask my permission. I said, what if he did, and you said they can swim? <laughs> and they still died, and the brigade commander would call you and say, why didn't you ask my permission? It could never end. And he says, forget it, leave him there. And Bob later ended up working for me, you know, years later, and he, he won a Silver Star later. He retired as lieutenant colonel. Yeah, he retired as lieutenant colonel. And how this battalion commander with, how long were, was he your It's battalion? interesting, in that battalion, right? there were three company commanders, two company commanders, who were ROTC graduate of Washita Baptist College in oh. Arkansas. And that's the same one as college as Mike Huckabee graduated from. How many companies were there? Four. Five, including headquarters. Headquarters. So five companies, a staff, battalion commander in you. Yeah. And then and about 500 soldiers yeah. that were out in the bush. On a good day in the bush, if you got 350 soldiers out there, it was a good day. How many battalion commanders did you have during those nine months? Three. Every three months you had a new one. Well, you know, one was overlapped, one was already there, but I had three. Throughout the nine months, the Marat, you always hear about rumors about drugs. and I'll Did you, you see I'll, any of that? I'll, I'll tell you. First of all, as an exo, I did not look for a problem. If I stumbled on a problem, I'd take care of it. But I didn't go on any kind of wish hunt because when soldiers were out on an operation, you didn't have to worry about drugs because everybody's watching everybody's back. Now, I'm not sure, I'm sure it happened, but it wasn't like common thing because people were wanting to survive. Uh, but at the same time, you know, I'm not gonna go and look at everybody's tent in the rear area. I was not looking for, if I, if I found it, I would deal with it. And I, I didn't have one instance to find it. The one thing I did find was interesting we had a club, a battalion club, and the guy who was running the club was a sergeant first class or something. He had been in country for like two years. He keeps on extending. He's got this job in the club. Was he part of the battalion? Yeah, he was part of the battalion. It was a battalion club. You, like, is it, it's an all-ranks club? Well, With was, alcohol and yeah, stuff like alcohol, that? Alcohol, everything. Back in so was this camp. in a comp? There weren't buildings? Back at Anke, at our base camp. Which is the base, which which heavy building, not The whole tents. division. No, they were in a sort of makeshift Quonset type of How often did you get back to NK, the unit? Uh, well, people would go back and forth, you know, that kind of so thing. So that was your... That was the base camp. Trains? Mess hall? We had a mess hall there, too. And, and how about the mess hall when you went forward? Was it... Was sometimes they, the cooks came with us. Sometimes they, they fed us because we, we had log bird. Uh, logistics birds that supported us. Sometimes they'd fly to chow out. Remember, we not, the battalion was never together. They'd go out and feed A company and then B company and C company, or maybe a platoon was out there. 
So the companies were all yeah, at different locations. Yeah. Did they? Did the battalion commander own an aircraft? Where he could, did always always have access? Every day we had an aircraft that could deliver challenges. No, that was we got two birds. One was a logistics bird, and one was a command and control bird. The battalion commander had the control. Battalion commander had the con, battalion control bird right. with the radios and everything. And then we had a logistics bird. What about the food? Was it was it hard food or was it uh, sea rations? No, regular chow. Did you ever eat sea rations that year? Oh yeah, we did sometimes, but. Uh, Usually, you got f the food was. Yeah, low. but when 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 a uh, rifle company's out and they're out on they patrols and rations. stuff, they took some other uh, channel with them. Uh, okay. One time, I decided at a standout. We were back at the standout, and, then, and I decided to feed everybody steaks. So I rounded up a Chinook, and I went back to Quinion. What is Quinion? Quinion is uh, is a uh, port. Okay. And uh, of course, we had logistics. It was a big logistics base. I got two things there. I said we were looking for the, the Viet Cong and Tuttles, so I went to an MP unit and got a bunch of bullhorns because I figured they'd have them, and they gave them to me. Then I went to the uh, the big quartermaster supply depot, and I got. They said, "How many people in your battalion?" I said, "800." <laughs> so they gave me steaks for 800 people. Then they gave me that all fit in a Huey. No, it was a Chinook. Oh, I had to give a case to the oh. Chinook pilot. <laughs> anyway, then, then uh, they had. Uh, oh yeah, they gave me a bunch of salad oil so we could uh, marinate the uh, yeah. the steaks, and he also he, he also gave me six fifty five gallon drums, empty, so we could cook the steaks. Yeah, yeah. So and I brought those in and uh, we fed the battalion steak and baked beans. I said I didn't want any pork. So we don't eat pork. <laughs> uh, so the morale of the soldiers you saw was good. Yeah, yeah. People but it was were, an aviation unit. No, this no, no, was, this a, was infantry unit. You know, it's just, it just the same as everything. You know, in one instance, I remember, I, I forget whose company was in. Uh, uh, a lieutenant was having some problems, you know, emotional problems going into an operation and stuff. And the company commander sent him back to get the soldiers' pay. Well, the minute he got back, he turned himself into the psychiatrist. We never saw him again. We had to get somebody else to pay. The <laughs> wrong choice was to send that guy back for pay. But Out of all the three battalion commanders, were all of them equally good? Or did you have one that was better than I the other? I thought Jim Mapp was the best. He was your last one or middle no, one? No, middle one. Middle and now, one. Jim Mapp... Had won the Distinguished Service Cross in Korea as a lieutenant, commanding right. a uh, a partisan battalion. So he was fearless. He was the only battalion commander I can who would get out of the helicopter and walk with soldiers on an operation. But all three of them were okay. Yeah, there were yeah, no yeah, bad yeah, yeah, bad leaders. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and the morale of the unit seemed to be really good. Yeah. Did you lose anybody those nine months? In the battalion? Yeah. Oh, yeah. We had lost, I don't know how many. But that some of them are on the... The Vietnam oh, yeah, War, like more. killed. Yeah, oh yeah. Whenever a soldier died, what did you do that day? Well, nothing that day, uh, uh, but uh, uh, what we do, we'd have a ceremony with the with, with the, the company. With the company, we put, or or maybe even a battalion, depending if we were a standbound thing or not. We'd have the rifles in the ground with the helmet, and we had a, we had our own battalion chaplain and all that. Did you do taps or do no yeah, music? They would, yeah, blow a bugle, whatever. And would the battalion commander say some words or the company commander? Yeah, yeah. Uh, but did you ever call the family up? Did the battalion no, commander ever? There was no, no calling. No, I don't even know if he wrote a letter. 
I'm not sure. Probably did. But there was quite a few yeah. that passed. You didn't go a month without losing somebody. No, no way. No way. Uh, and, and it was uh, hard to say. If you were in infantry in that unit, you were medevac for something. And malaria. Uh, of course, how was, how was your health during that time frame? It was good. I lost I lost some weight, but uh, I was... Uh, but you never sick. You never... So you never had one the whole year you were there. Did you have... And besides going home to Grandpa for yeah, two weeks, yeah. did you have any R&R? I went on R&R, yeah. Where did you... When, when did you go on R&R? Where did you go? I Japan. How long? I spent... Well, I think it's seven days is all it was. Did Mom didn't go? No. Who'd you go with? Just by yourself? Yeah, I just went on an r Did you just sleep? No, I went out. I walked around. You know, I just... You didn't have to worry about anything. So it was relaxing. It was just relaxing. And, and when did you? When did you know when you were leaving Vietnam? Did I you know the day I got there? Oh, so you knew the you exact day. Yeah. So did you work all the way to the day you left Vietnam, oh, yeah. Yeah. or five days later? Oh, no, you, no, 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 no. Did your replacement come? So your replacement was was there. I don't even know if he was there or not. So really, you left the, the base camp, yeah. and the next day you flew back. That's to, right. And how'd you get back? No, I went back to Saigon and how long? for a day. I mean, it was not. It was, it was no big. Do you have to go in Class A's again? No. So, I mean, uh, and then you got on a flight and the flight was full, wasn't it? Oh, yeah. How was that feeling? It was take, a charter flight. How was that feeling taking oh, off? Oh, great. Everybody cheered. Everybody broke ground. And mom knew you were coming back then? Yeah, yeah. And where did you, and uh, what, award, what awards did you get? What, what kind of awards did you get that first tour? I got uh, two bronze stars, a couple air medals. Okay, but you were uh, air medals for, for every uh, every twenty five flights on an operation or whatever they had a they had a rule. Had a rule. What about the experience about the inspector general? You tell that story. Oh yeah. About the inspector general and. Well, in the division, we were all spread out over the place, so they uh, they had a uh, requirement that all the battalion executive officers were also. Assistant Inspector Generals, which are met a conflict because as a member of the battalion, you, you have a responsibility for order and discipline and all that. As the IG, you have to investigate your own unit. And I got a call from the IG, who, that guy named Rickard, who later became my, the third battalion commander I had. And he, uh, he called me and he says, uh, there's been looting in the 1st to the 5th Cavalry. And he, he gave me a list of all the stuff that had been looted. And our, uh, we were not sort of in a standout. We were, we were all loggered someplace. And uh, I got back to the unit. I got all the company commanders together. I said, I told them what happened. I said, and I couldn't discuss it with my battalion commander because I was doing an inspector general investigation. So I said, these are the watches, the serial numbers. This is the money. Named. I said, I'm going to be out for a couple hours. When I come back, I want to find it all here. When I got back, every bit of it was there. The watches with the serial numbers, everything. So I took it all and took it to the IG's office. And I said, the report is correct. Fortunately, nobody was raped or killed. I said, the message is out. I said, here's the stuff. Guilty as charged. Then I went back. And Colonel Mapp was a battalion commander. I said, uh, I told him, I said, uh, I got to tell you what happened. And he said, you had to do what you had to do. Don't worry about it. Uh, later on, a couple of weeks later, I got a call from uh, Colonel Casey, who was, had been a brigade commander, but he was now division chief of staff. And he called me and he says, you know about that report that you filed as the assistant IG? I said, yes, sir. He said, 
We sent the same kind of letter to every maneuver battalion. Yours the only one that said uh, the report is correct. You can work for me anytime. Anyway, fortunately, he got killed later commanding that division, unfortunately. Yeah. But his son became chief of staff of the Army. And you're able to talk to him. I know I wrote, you wrote him, yeah. and I spoke to him twice. Yeah. And said uh, his father meant a lot to my father. Yeah. Uh, how money wise, how much did you get paid weekly, monthly? Do you remember? And how much? I don't remember. All my you were a major. I, I, I don't even remember uh, how much I made. Did you, I mean, you, did it come to you or did it go to mom? No, it came to your mother. I took about 25 or $30 a month and the rest went to your mother. How did you, did you sort of check to yourself? No, no, no. It, uh, I was paid in cash. I, I allotted every little money and the guy with payroll used to come by. We used to pay people. You know, you know, those so you got, he actually just gave you $25 a month? Yeah, yeah. And then the rest of it, how did mom get the money? Allotment. And went to a check direct. Did they have direct deposit? Yeah, went right to her. So it went directly to her account. And you lived off. Did you ever need any more? No. What do you What did you spend the money on? Well, I don't know, but I didn't want to be broke. Um. <laughs> uh, the there were no credit cards at that time. What was your? And maybe you already told me. What was your most memorable experience that first tour? The first tour, the most memorable experience. It's hard, you know, that that whole experience was, uh, as a soldier, you go through your whole life mostly training and at peace and all that stuff, mm -hmm. but that whole one year, especially the with the 1st and the 5th Cavalry, it really brought you closer uh, to the human element and people, and that people are your most important product. And it really made me sensitive. I remember uh, during my second tour is when the Israeli uh, uh, 67 war broke out. And the Jewish chaplain, who was one in theater, came by our place. And he said he was raising money. In that battalion, and these are guys that didn't have a lot of cash. They donated like $300 to give to this guy. How did you celebrate like, Yom Kippur and Rosh Hashanah as a Jew? Did you celebrate any of the holidays at all? And did you go to Saigon no, for some of them? No, I, my first tour, not. I, I didn't go out. You tell a story of, I, I forgot we were on K or something like that, we were surrounded and you left, and then the person who took over got killed. You thought it was killed. Oh, that was the second tour. The second tour, okay. Yeah. So uh, so where when you left, where did you go? You left Vietnam, now tour's over with. You got to San I Francisco. To General Staff College. No, the San Francisco. Did the yeah, people, did San you find people spinning at you or anything like that? Never. That's an interesting thing. You know, you hear about all this abuse of, and I'm sure it happened. But I've talked to a lot of Vietnam vets, and I asked them if it ever happened to you. And the answer was no. So I you was, never saw it. No. And Either what, tour. Pardon me. Either tour. Either tour. First tour, or second in tour. Fact, in fact, later on, when I went to Washington after the Command General Staff College, I was going to graduate school, you know, at night and stuff, and I was in civilian clothes with a bunch of civilian kids, and I never got any of that. How were we when you came home? Do you remember when you walked home, how the boys and mom... Oh, yeah, everybody was uh, welcoming me. How old was... Oh, you were 67, so I was eight. Yeah. Alan had said... So the boys were eight, seven, and five. five yeah, or four. I don't remember yeah, the yeah, first yeah, tour you coming yeah. home. Uh, and you came home to Kansas City? Yeah. And, and then my you, then, father visited you that uh, I remember that. Hanukkah, yeah. 
then you went to Leavenworth? Yeah. And then after Leavenworth, where'd you go? To Washington, to the Pentagon. And then when did you find out you were going back to Vietnam? Well, Norm Schwarzkopf was my assignments officer. Mm -hmm. And I read an article in the Army Times. I was in the Chief of International Standardization Office. I was the chief, actually. And uh, I got a call. No, I read in the Army Times that if you wanted to, they would let you go for a year to finish up your master's degree. You get a master's degree. And I've been working on this thing, a master's of science. But I called up Norman and I said, what is this deal? I said, uh, he said, well, we'll let you go to get your MBA at George Washington, because I was already enrolled. What rank were you at the time? I was lieutenant colonel. Okay. So I said, what do I have to do? He said, get permission of uh, General Collins, who's the Assistant Chief of Staff Force Development. I said, do I need any paperwork? He said, no, just tell me. But he said, you just volunteered for a second tour. So General Collins is really the one that told you you were going... No, no, no. Schwarzkopf no. was. Schwarzkopf. So you went He's for the a, guy who told me. I got you. So you went a year for MBA. We're in Kansas City now. No, no we're no, in Washington. No, we're in Washington, yeah. We're in Washington. I'd already been there a year. Right. And then we're in Washington. You did MBA. Two shoot. years I'd been there. This was the third year in Washington. And then you knew right after you were finished that you were going back I to I was there. on my orders. They were going to put me on to get this graduate degree. And then uh, on my way, I said, it said second tour volunteer on my order. <laughs> I never showed it to your mother. And was and how did you break it to us, the boys? And, and I, I just said I got another assignment. I'm going back. Did we did we stay in D.C. while you, you left? You stayed in D.C. Yeah. So we were in D.C. We yeah. Kentville, Maryland. One. Yeah, Kentville. Okay. And uh, can and we take a break? Stay with you. We'll take a okay break. Okay, I'm ready. You ready to go, Dad? I would never have read not read. Okay, are we started? Yeah. Okay, the sec uh, wh what dates were you the second tour? Uh, 1971. What month? June. Around? June, I guess. To June of 72. So really it's four years. You had a, there was a four-year break in between from yeah. 67 to 71. Yeah. And, uh, and and how did we take it? No, just like, you know, when you're in a soldier's family, you just accept it. It was not, it was not like we, it was a debate or anything. Where did you do the same thing, San Francisco, and then where? No, your mother put me on a plane to Dulles. I went to San Francisco. and then Did I, we come to Dulles with you? No. Okay, gotcha. Do you, what do you remember about him leaving? Uh, I, I was at an age of 7th, 8th grade. I kind of looked forward to it. Because I thought I had freedom. My dad was a tough cookie. So I thought, geez. And Bobby stayed with us. Yeah. Bobby we stayed with us the whole year. I'll, I'll tell that story in a second. Because it was not a good year for me. I wasn't the best brother that year. Uh, I, it was a, between 8th grade and 7th grade. You probably need your father. But dad was pretty firm. And I, I was excited about him being well, caught his mother, for you. But the funny thing is... Uh, his mother made sure he had male teachers in school. Yeah, but they didn't do a good job. No, but I mean, she <laughs> wanted the male presence. That's the thing. I mean, I think the only reason why you I made the, the best eighth, you can. the only reason why I made the eighth grade basketball team is because the mom told the coach, and I made the team as the last person picked, but I wasn't that good, 
And they kept me only because dad was the only one in the area that was from Vietnam. In fact, the story is, and I'll tell it now is, uh, my teacher was an enemy, Mr. Covert, 23, 24, hated Vietnam, thought Vietnam, is 71, 72. So the American public disliked Vietnam, did not want us there, was anti-President Nixon was bad. So the story his dad tells you from the military, which I think may have been different than his first tour, maybe not, uh, they hated it. And one day, for some reason, we talked about Vietnam in class. We had the debate whether it was right to be in Vietnam. And everyone in class, to include Cover, says Vietnam was the worst war. We were losing it. And they asked me, because they know that I was. I go, no, Vietnam's good. Because if, if we lose that, then we can lose other countries. And uh, it was a communist country at North. And, and we wouldn't be there unless there was a reason why we were there. And they go, you're wrong. And, they, and then finally they go, why would you be there? They go, because my dad says we're there. My dad's never been wrong. <laughs> and uh, uh, Cover did not believe that. The teacher says, your dad's wrong. He shouldn't be at Vietnam. We have many people dying. Now, I never thought about death. I never thought of, it never even crossed my mind that dad would go there and come back and die. It just, for some reason, I knew people were dying, but I said, not my dad. So I knew he'd come back, and I was dreading when he came back. <laughs> and when my dad came back from the war, I'd never forget it. We were on this big couch, and dad walks in. And I go, hey, Dad. And he, he went, hey, son. And, you know, it was fine. But I just, I had freedom that year with Bobby. And then Bobby left. And then Dad stayed there. I showed up. Dad, 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 Dad showed up. But, uh, his, but uh, anyway. So, so, so one, real quick, who was right in that discussion, that class discussion? What do you guys think looking I, back on I, I think it was, Dad, what, what's your thoughts? Why were we How there? was Vietnam? 71, 72 was bad. The Tet Offensive well, occurred. In, 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 in 1971 and 72, and I'll talk about it when we discuss it, but we were having a big drawdown. I, I was an advisor to a Vietnamese regiment. For the whole year, right, For Dad? For the whole year. And, and to start off with, how many people did you start out with? I had about probably 10 people on my advisory team. What were the ranks? I had well, how many major three captains, some NCOs. And then when did you get down to just you and a major? By the, uh, what I did is I saw there was no reason because the reason, the reason I looked, needed somebody to hold the American flag. I didn't need eight people. Uh, and I couldn't even, we couldn't even call my own medevac. I mean, there was, the American units were all leaving. So uh, what You I were did, basically teaching the Vietnamese to take care of themselves. Yeah, and, and I, what we did was I, uh, but they've been at this war for 15 years already. I mean, they've, it's not like, some of these guys were fought with the French. Was your main job as advised the battalion commander? That was no, your job? Regimental commander. Regimental commander, so we colonel. Had, we had three battalions, and we had, uh, we had artillery battalion attached. So you were the regimental advisor? Yeah. Were there advisors for each one of the battalions too? No, I pulled them out because they couldn't help. So, so after how long? After three months, how long was it just two? After people? about five months, I got all my people reassigned the rear area jobs. So really, I didn't just... need them. I needed one guy that would speak English. So <laughs> me and the major were there. So your job was only to advise the regimental command. Yeah, but I was involved in all of it. I set up a uh, close combat range for them. My NCOs and I. We, the first couple months. Yeah. Well, actually, did they go out on patrol with them the first three, four months? Sometimes my my captains did. 
Did the NCOs do it? Yeah, I usually captain and NCO went together. I didn't send up anybody by himself. Did you lose it? Anybody get injured? No, didn't get so none injured. of the advisors got injured. No. During the whole year, was later ever... on, later on, but that. What's that? When we get when we get into the Easter offensive, I'll talk to that. Okay, so the first three or four months when you had everybody there, you advised, you did your same regimental commander the whole year. Yeah. What was his name? Colonel Trung. And how did you eat? What was the food you ate? I ate in a Vietnamese mess. I, oh, ate I know Vietnamese what. Food. What was the standard food? Well, one chicken would feed fourteen people. A lot of rice. You know, so you lost lots of weight there. Except when the corps commander would come, and then they'd have French bread and nice stuff. <laughs> How often did he come? Not often, but okay. when he did come, we would So was the food it. okay? or? It was okay. It was nourishing. And I also, every time a helicopter come back, I'd say, bring some ice cream. And they, occasionally they'd show up, one of ours, you know. I, they'd bring some ice cream, and then everybody would get sick. How so, big was the regimental, the Vietnamese regimental unit? The The unit? Yeah, probably twenty five hundred. That many people. Yeah, and were they all in one location, or were the battalions all spread apart? Sometimes they were together. Most times, one or two battalions was out. Where was the headquarters? At Lyte. What was the most memorable experience or day you had? The most memorable, the, the most memorable experience was when the Easter offensive started. Which is when? This was in April of nineteen seventy two. It was just the two instances. Just before that time, though, the Easter Offensive started. I was uh, I was with the with the regimental commander in a helicopter. First of all, the first helicopter landed, and we got in. And when I got in, the emergency warning light was on, and I tapped the pilot on the <laughs> thing, and I showed him my wings, and I, yeah. and I pointed to the emergency light and said. Been on all day, no problem. I said, we're <laughs> going to get out of here. And he took Was it a red crashed light? into the trees. What's that? He went and got picked it up and crashed into the trees. Were you on board? No, I got out. I'm not <laughs> going to go in a Did he later. live? Everybody lived, but I didn't need to be part of that. Yeah, gotcha. So anyway, that was just before. That was before. But we were we were flying. We're, we're, we're flying with the with the regimental commander. And it's the first time that I ever Whose seen... Whose helicopter was it? Was it a Vietnamese helicopter Vietnam, or VNF, VNF. So it was a Vietnamese helicopter. Yeah, okay. yeah. It was an American helicopter, but VNF. The Vietnamese were Rucker. flying. They were flying. Yeah, yeah. And their English was okay? Well, they all were graduated from Fort Rucker. Yeah, I got you. Anyway, so we were flying over, and i never seen it before. I saw a battalion of NVA in the open. Never forget it. North Vietnamese Army. How many people total? Probably four hundred. Yeah. I mean, a, a lot of. And they open an open field. Yeah, they were across an open field. I right. saw it. My my regimental commander saw it, and we had a a company of uh, Vietnamese Air Force gunships attached to the regiment. And I said, "We got to call from those gunships." So we called for them, and the response was, <laughs> "We're eating lunch. We can't come." And I looked at the battalion, the regimental commander. He said, they can't come to reading lunch. I said, the war is lost, my friend. <laughs> I told him that. And then well, later on, he called them again. And they said, well, we'll come if you give us a generator and so much rice. You know, they were bargaining. Yeah. And I said, it's over. Anyway. Did you ever get that report to your higher headquarters? What just happened? 
or did you keep it to yourself? I told Bill Miller was my the division advisor, but was so, that your boss? Was yeah, General Bill, Mo, uh, Colonel Miller? Colonel Miller. Yeah, yeah. That's the only person you worked for for the whole yeah, year. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Then, then, then. So, uh, real quick, you know the saying: nobody remembers how you start; they remember how you finish, finish, right? Yeah. So all the ideas of what we assume Vietnam to be kind of correlates with what you just said, yeah, where yeah. these different the different units are kind of just bartering for their own self interest. That, that's right. More so than the interest of. The but war. these were Vietnamese. These weren't Americans. These weren't Americans. These were Americans. Uh, uh, the Americans are already we had seventy two. Pretty much pulled out. As a matter of fact, as a matter of fact, we had a battalion of artillery supporting us one time. Army, Army U.S. Or U.S. Vietnam. artillery. Yeah. And I went over there. That was the most raggedy bunch. I mean, they just weren't effective or anything. I told them to get them the hell out of here. I said, I did not need that. And that's where you had, I guess, there was a unit that was pretty stationary, a lot of pot smoke and that kind of thing, probably lack of discipline. You know, we're talking about There's the morale 1972, scene. you could see the morale. And I, I tell you uh, uh, one other thing. When the Tet Offensive started, when the Easter Offensive started, I w First of all, my unit was supposed to go to a place called Loch Ninh, the 8th Regiment. Instead, at the last minute, they sent the 9th Regiment. And the guy who was a senior advisor was a guy named Dick Schott, who went to the advanced course with me, and I got him that job. Because he was back in Saigon, and he wanted to earn a combat infantry bed. I got him that job. Well, to make a long story short, the 9th Regiment was overrun, Every advisor was either killed or captured, including Dick, and the regiment was wiped out. And for the luck of the draw, my regiment could have been there. So you never know how the cards would be dealt. But we were, into, we were located at the Michelin Plantation, and uh, we were being mortared when the Easter Offensive started. And the Corps commander... What was the time Easter Offensive again? You April. April of 72. Yeah. And you left in June of 72. Yeah, May or okay. June. Okay, go ahead. Anyway, then I was, because they, they started to cut back D-Roses. In other words, it wasn't a year tour, it was 11 months, then 10 months, anyway. So the Corps commander was flying over my position, and he says, what's going on down there? And I said, we're being mortared pretty heavily. And he said, I can't see it from here. Of course, <laughs> he's at 10,000 feet. I'm <laughs> down there. So I said, let me put it this way. My mother would say, this is no place for a nice Jewish boy. And he shut off his radio and kept going. <laughs> anyway, later on, uh, and we were surrounded for a while, but we got out of that. It was time for me to, to leave. And uh, as a matter of fact, I was, uh, Bill Miller left me in charge of On K, which was our uh, base. It wasn't a city. There is a city, a town, but a base. And uh, I didn't have anybody there, and I, uh, I signed over all the property to the Vietnamese commander. And somebody said, <laughs> said, how do you have that authority? I said, well, I'm not going to watch this stuff, you know, so I signed it over. Anyway, but it was time for me to leave. So I'm invited back to the Corps headquarters, back at uh, uh, Benoit, which was near Saigon. And I get back there, and I get on the scale, I think I weigh 183 pounds or something. I didn't recognize it, because I was 
pretty sick. I had tropical sprue, it turns Did out. Did you know you were sick while you were in Vietnam? Well, I knew. I was tired. I knew I was losing weight, but I didn't know to what degree. What was your average day like during the days? What time do you wake up in the morning? Oh, 6, 5.30. And then what time do you usually go to bed, average? Well, no, no, why? I don't, I don't really remember. First of all, you'd spend time in the talk, you know, the, the no, tactical no. operations center. And no days off. You didn't take Sunday No, 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 no. There was no days off. Did you go R&R at all? Yeah, I took two R&Rs. I met your mother in Hawaii and then flew home one time. And then I went to... I don't uh, remember. Yeah, I did. You saw us? Seven and seven, yeah. How was I? Fine. Okay. And then I took one other R&R. I went to Thailand, I think. With mom? No, I just went myself. So, first tour, you tr flew home? No. First tour, I flew home. No, I know, but for, I meant the I second tour. You took two R&Rs. Yeah. One, first seven days is what? You took seven and seven. Seven days leave, seven days R&R. You went to Hawaii. I met your mother in Hawaii. Then we flew home, okay. and then I came back. And, and then, then the second one, you went, went to Thailand. went to Thailand, yeah. Did you go with anybody or just by yourself Definitely again? Definitely myself. Uh, okay, go ahead. You were told. So, anyway... Time to leave. So I get to the track headquarters, and the Corps commander asked me for dinner. U.S. Corps? Yeah, yeah. Who was he? Uh, Hollingsworth. Okay. Anyway, so we get there, and I thought, you remember, you ever see the movie Paths of Glory? I did. With Kirk Douglas? Yeah. It's a World War One movie. you got to see it. Because uh, Kirk Douglas is a regimental commander in the front lines, dirty, messed up, and they call him back. And he's in a chateau, and everybody's singing and dancing and having a wonderful time drinking wine. Well, when I went back to the track headquarters, he invited me to the general's mess. And there I'm in the general's mess, and uh, the waiters are wearing white gloves. They're silverware. Everybody's joking and smoking and whatever. And I thought I was back in uh, Paths of Glory. People were dying 40 miles away, and well, these guys know. are... Well, maybe they knew. How was the morale at that time with the U.S.? Did they think the war was going to go on forever? I don't know. All I had was advisors, and they were just doing a job. So I you, never, you, even, never during, even, even during your advisor days, you only had the major and a couple of days, you didn't see bad morale? No. It, it, you know, when you, you were, were professional soldiers. What was your thought the second tour of the Vietnam War when you got back? Well, I you told you what I, what I said. When people asked me, I said it was a good idea at the time. But you knew the second tour, you knew it, it was time. It was a long tour, but I want to tell you, uh, once again, it was really a learning experience, a different experience for me. You're dealing in a foreign country, you know, on their terms. Uh, and, and I'll tell you, that their soldiers were good. It all depended on leadership, you know. One time... One time I walked out of the uh, command post with a regimental commander, and one soldier shot himself in the foot. And I said, we got to get this guy a medic. And the regimental commander said he shot himself in the foot and let him lay out there and die. Well, Was his English good enough that you could understand him? Yeah, we worked with it, yeah. So he just said, I hey. I talked a little French, too, so, uh, you know. Uh, what did you think of the Vietnamese leaders? Just like anybody else, or good ones. My regimental commander was a pretty good leader. Oh, the first day I got there, and the regiment when I was assigned, I got in there, and the unit had just been on an operation in Snool, which is in Cambodia, got kicked out. They lost about fifteen hundred people, so the unit was decimated. This regimental commander was a new regimental commander, 
and he came up to me, and I asked my my division uh, uh, advisor, Bill Miller. I said, "What's my mission? You know, I always what, what what's my job here? Because they didn't send me to the matter course, which was a pre thing for advisors. I didn't go. They said I didn't need that. Anyway, so uh, Bill Miller said, who had been an old combat guy for the Second World War. He commanded a battalion in the 25th Division. I mean, he was a soldier, soldier. And he says, just make it a little better for having you been here. So I arrive and the regimental commander says, I got all my people back here. I'm getting replacements. I'd like to, I'd like to do something and uh, have some beer and Cokes for them and stuff. But he couldn't get that stuff. So he says, could you get it for us? This is the, like the fourth day, you know. And of course, that's against the rules. And I said to myself, well, you know, I could get it. He says, I'll pay for it. I said, I said, uh, so I said, you know, it's good to find out whether we got a good relationship or not now. And if he doesn't sell it to somebody else, or they, well, we got it all. He had a thing like a field day for his uh, soldiers. All the Cokes and the beer were out there. They drank it. And I, I did that. Again, that's the first day, but my inclination was you don't want to get involved in that kind of thing, but I did. Was your relationship with him professional? Oh, he had a good professional. Always a professional. Oh, Any okay. personal? Did you ever ask about your family? You asked about his family? Oh, yeah, and I met his family. You did? Yeah, he had me for dinner one time. Remember, in the Vietnamese unit, the family stayed right with the unit. Oh, so he was, the wife was, no, he, no, she he went home right every there. No, no, he didn't go home every day, but... There was always a camp outside the base where, 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 on K, where the families lived. Now his family was in Saigon, but he was a, he had fought with the French. I mean, he had a, he had a. Were you getting any reports from America about how the, the. the I only listened to uh, AFN. So it wasn't, you didn't hear how I bad it was. Good Morning America. Remember with uh, that movie, Good Morning America? Yeah. Good Morning, Good morning. Vietnam. What was your most memorable experience being an advisor on that second tour? The most memorable, uh, well, there were two. Once when I was uh, when we saw that uh, Vietnamese unit in the uh, in the yeah. open, and uh, and uh, that was how about the one you? I, I vaguely remember because oh. you never talked about Vietnam. About the guy got shot. You thought he was dead, and years later you found out he had lived, and you thought he had died. I don't remember, but people have called me. They thought I was killed. Oh, I'll tell you, I'll tell you one. Uh, we were we were flying, and our unit was in the assault. And I was on the ground with my regimental commander, and uh, he asked me to call for some air support. And we got some air support off the SS Hancock. And I asked him. First of all, we had uh, we were supported by the Seventeenth Group, actually. Yeah. And uh, they, uh, I, I had one of the loach pilots drop my people some smoke so they could point out the position. And when the, when the airstrike came, I said, uh, I told them where to, where to, where to uh, put their stuff. And the, the guy, the pilot, asked me to phonetically spell my name because if it was a friendly fire thing, he wanted to know where to delegate blame. And I did. <laughs> Years later, I'm talking to my friend Stanley Hyman. He says, a guy wants to talk to you here. He was at the Pentagon, Stanley. Naval commander, he said, 
I'm the guy that was flying that mission. I'm glad you ended up alive. Anyway, that, that's one instance. But uh, what about the story that you told story, me? But the, you're you're overrun, or something like that. You had you that you had gotten out. I thought it was locked in or something like that. No, and lock. And lock and. And if you'd have been there two or three days later, yeah. that would have been you. Yeah. Was that the second tour? Or first. No, tour? that was the that was the uh, second tour, and that's when uh, I told you the story about the Ninth Regiment. Uh, yeah. The Ninth Regiment was. Uh, the guy was talking on the radio, and you, he was hit. Yeah. And you thought he had died. Yeah. And then years later, you well, found out he lived. He ended up a, as a student at CGSC. A guy yeah. Tell Carlson. me that one. What was his name? Carlson. Go ahead. He was a field artillery. He was an advisor in the Ninth Regiment. He was he was captured, and uh, was released when they were released, and uh, came to. Um, but you were talking to him on the radio. Yeah, when he when he when, when he's he got being overrun. Yeah. How, how do you feel about? I mean, what do you say to a guy who you know is being overrun? How do you keep his morale up? Well, you don't. Well, he went off the radio, so it was easy. We okay. Little conversation. How did he sound? He sounded like he needed some help, and I couldn't give him any. How did you feel about that? I didn't feel good, but I didn't. I didn't have anything to give. I was back at Anke or wherever I was. I didn't have anything to send him. First of all, the first cavalry was up there trying to help him. Jim Hamlet and his brigade. Do you know how he was treated as a prisoner of war? Not too good. I, I later met a bunch of them back at. Uh, in fact, remember I took you to a talk at Leavenworth where one of the POWs spoke. It really impressed. He was an Air Force guy, I think. But anyway, uh, yeah, uh, I talked to him back then, but, but uh, it's it's hard it's hard how, to recall. How did Mom think we boys did with you not being there for the year? Because the second tour, Bobby Bobby was there again. Yeah. The second tour, uh, how did she think we did? She did her job just like she always does. I mean, she had a lot on her. She had a lot on her plate, but not only. Uh, you didn't three. they? Did I get bar mitzvah after you got back? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So we sit. waited. Yeah, waited for that, and then six months later we did sit. Yeah, yeah you waited for me. Yeah, yeah, To get back to get bar mitzvah. Yeah, uh, I remember that. Uh, the how do you keep in contact with mom? Right again every day. Every day. I I remember you calling up one time. Um, the second tour I did. Maybe. Yeah. Oh, one on a, time, one time I went back and uh, for the for Yom Kippur, I think I went back to Saigon, and General Wyan was the was the big commander there, and I'd worked for him in the Pentagon, and I walked into his office and, and uh, I saw I didn't make an appointment, I just walked in and told him I would talk to him, because how often did he talk to people like me, you know, that were advisors out in the field, and uh, I told him how it was, just volunteered it. What'd you say? I said they're just like everybody else. They got good leaders. They got bad leaders. The soldiers are good. If and you saw leaders, some of the bad leaders too. Oh yeah. yeah. But your regimental commander, yeah, you're pretty was, he was a great guy. Uh, he was a graduate of the uh, uh, of the. Uh, I think he went to the French uh, West Point. Did you ever, after he left, ever see him again? The only time I saw him is after the. Uh, the, uh, the NBA took over the country. 75. I saw him on television in a clip. He was in a re-education program. But never. That, do you remember the, because I vividly remember the phone call when you made, and we had to say over after each one, you were on a oh, handheld. Yeah. 
And I remember the only question I could think of is, why do I have to say over, over? <laughs> that was a question I had. I mean, why am I saying that over, That might have been on my first tour. It went through the Mars station. It that, might, through... that might have been on my first tour. Okay, I remember only talking to you one time. Yeah, and it went through a relay in Alaska or someplace. Uh, so you found out you were coming back. How'd you come back? By plane. I know, I know. San Francisco. In San Francisco. And no, Your but, mother met me. But in 72, still no spinning at you? No. No, no, no anti-war into, stuff. Never ran into that. The only uh, thing, I was, in a, I, I, was, I was in the San Francisco airport, and I ran into a Marine with his tie undone. Oh. And I went up to him, and I said, you know, you're the first Marine I've ever run into <laughs> that wasn't dressed right. What did he say? He said, yes, sir, I'll shape up. And you were a lieutenant colonel at the time? Yeah. What, so you came back from Vietnam. And what, it went to Lehigh. It went to Lehigh University as a PMS for a year. Yeah, for a year. Uh, and any message, any last words to your grandchildren that are listening to this about your experiences in Vietnam? No, no. Experiences are just like anything, whether in Vietnam or someplace else. They're part of the baggage you carry. You learn from it, and you also learn what not to do sometimes, and you learn to do. Like when you're in around. When you when you work for different people or you're in school or whatever, you're going to see some good things. You're going to see some some that aren't so good. Learn from the good stuff and emulate it, and the bad stuff. Make sure you don't do it. Well, you were very sick coming back, but you didn't know how sick you were. No, I had uh, tropical sprue. You didn't know it until you got back they home. Cured me with one pill. And where where did you get cured in Bethesda? At the Walter Reed. At Walter Reed. So you walked in. When you got back, the first day you went into the hospital? No, I went in after I got back. I don't remember, and they did a small bile biopsy. And that's when they found I had tropical sprue, which is a fungus of the gut. And uh, and they uh, then they gave me a, a pill that took care of it. And I said, well, why did you just give me the pill? And I said, well, if you didn't have it, we gave you the pill, it would have killed you. So I took care of that. That was great. I could eat ice cream sodas and everything else. And... Uh, uh, before you had the pill. Yeah, before I had the pill. Because you were, it was that the lowest weight you'd yeah, ever been? about 185. Mom says she didn't recognize you when she you got She didn't recognize me when I got off the plane. Now, I, I might have had something. I said I did not want to be in close. You know, you can imagine you go from a <coughs> war zone within 24 hours where you're, you know, in fear for your life, you got to worry about those things, to like San Francisco. I mean, it's it, a... And these people are like in a different planet. <laughs> did, did loud sounds bother you initially? No, but I felt like I was. I did. In fact, I made us take a a, a open bus tour because I didn't want to go inside. Like claustrophobia? No, maybe? not claustrophobia. Just I don't know why. Probably they call it PTSD. Well, you didn't want to go inside buildings. No, I just I just wanted to breathe air without you know. Yeah, I can understand that. Without way. you know. Be free. I didn't want to have to be looking over my shoulder. How was large, loud, I know for me, loud sounds didn't bother you? No. Even if all like uh, a firecracker or something didn't bother you? Yeah, I don't remember. Were you ever the two years you were there, both tours, in fear for your life at all? Do you ever worried about a situation? You know, not, not really. Even in the middle of a firefight, it just never went through my mind. You just do your job, whatever it is, you know. What awards did you went? Did you receive the second tour? I got the Legion of Merit. I got the, the Vietnamese Cross of Gallantry with Star and Bomb. That's it. 
Any messages for your grandchildren that could be listening? You just said it. I just said it. You just said it. Any other last words about the, either one of the tours? No, no. I think we covered uh, we covered everything. I tried, uh, but uh, but when I was teaching at Leavenworth is when in 1975 when the war ended ended, and I was teaching a class and we had some Vietnamese officers in the class, a lot of Allied officers. I was lieutenant colonel, and uh, I'll never forget the. Uh, the word came through at 8 o'clock in the morning. I had a class I'm at. In a military school, what a class meets, it meets for the required number of hours or whatever. And I got up there and, and uh, you know, we just announced that they had evacuated and, and North Vietnam took over the country. And I said, uh, everybody's excused. This is no day to learn anything. Tell about the, we'll end off with the story about the uh, Medal of Honor recipient. Oh, uh, yeah. Colonel Jacobs. Well, we were in, uh, I was in class at, at the Command General Staff College, and I was... What year? Uh, about? Probably 1977, 76, okay. something like that. And uh, I was teaching a class. I was chief of the profession of arms committee, which taught, you know, ethics. It taught diversity. It taught all that ash and trash, you know, stuff. And... Uh, and I was teaching a class, and some major raised his hand, a class of 50 majors. And uh, in nameplate defilade, you know, they, nobody is, uh, I, I knew their name, but you know, they're, they're students. He raised his hand, he said, you know, Colonel Abramowitz, he said, you're the first Jew I've ever seen with the combat infantryman's badge. And I said, is that right? He said, yeah, I said, all the Jews I know are either lawyers or doctors in the army <laughs> or in the quartermaster corps. <laughs> I said, who's that guy sitting next to you? He said, that's my friend Jack Jacobs. I said, he's one of our people. And Jack had the Medal of Honor. And it was just like a significant emotional event for the whole classroom. I mean, everybody in that classroom, I mean, whatever they thought before, it just destroyed the stereotype. But it was like a target of opportunity. People have come up to me and said, that must have been staged. I said, it wasn't staged. It was just... <laughs> You got to think on your feet, you know, and it just happened to be. And uh, and uh, that's a Jack Jacobs is a guy you see him on MSNBC all the time. All the time. Can you think of anything else, Adam? To yeah, a few up? things. Go ahead. You're back. You're back, and you're you're from the war zone. You're in San Francisco. What were the thoughts going around in your head, just being out in public, seeing people be civilians? How did you perceive that? What did, what were you thinking? Well, it was like, maybe culture shock isn't the right word, but, but again, you came from one place where people were killing each other or trying to kill each other to this where people didn't have a clue. You know, and these were relatives of the same people that were over there. It was just, to me... I'm wondering about value. So when you're, when you're in, when you're on camp, in base, you see somebody, you recognize their value because they're... They're oh, yeah. there to serve, protect, yeah, yeah. fight, yeah, die. Yeah, whatever. Now you're in civilian world, and people are wondering, shopping, going yeah. out to eat, and you're like, what's the point? Do you ever think, what's the point? No, you say, you say what, what I said to myself, there's something wrong that whether you're talking about when we went to war in Iraq, example, and George Bush got on that thing with the bullhorn, 
and said, we're going to war, etc. But he didn't ask anybody to sacrifice. He said, go shopping. He didn't say, let's, let's uh, turn back that tax thing. Let's pay for this war. Let's pay for our thrills. It's that kind of thing. People were having people do their dirty work, but we're willing to pay for it, whether emotionally or otherwise. That's, that's what I think. I thought that was the biggest mistake of the Iraq war. Instead of, during the Second World War, we had rationing. In other words, you have Meatless Tuesdays, everybody had a ration book. And the funny part about it, we didn't need to do all that. We didn't need to read. We had plenty of gasoline, we had everything. But the government did that to make everybody have skin in the game. But sometimes you do things to make sure everybody, even during Vietnam, Lyndon Johnson passed a 10% surcharge on income taxes to pay for the war. This guy didn't do that. And they're arguing about a $19 million, trillion dollar debt. We would have still had a debt. You always go to debt when you go to war. But like I say, you pay for your thrills. If you do these things, you pay for it. What do you think about while you're over there in Vietnam and you're busy all day long, but there's moments when you're alone and you're by yourself? What is it that you're thinking about? Oh, a lot of times I think, like I tell you, I wrote Irene every day. Okay. It, it might have been only two or three lines. And we've got all those letters at home. Yeah. We've got them all. But uh, you think of family, and also you think, what's coming tomorrow? And you think about your mission, what you, what you got going tomorrow. How do you prepare? I mean, exa exa it's a simple example. Like, I'm going to go to, uh, uh, tomorrow I'm going to Colomet, you know, to see uh, Della's Friday thing, you know, for Passover. Well, I'm going to set up my GPS this afternoon. Yeah. I'm not going to wait till the morning. morning. <laughs> huh. Because when I think about when I was in college doing playing football, yeah. my, tr my, my mind track was just doing the obligations, doing what was needed next, and then the downtime was really just all about relaxing, not even thinking about future back home. But I could see if you're in a place like where you were at, Maybe your thoughts could go towards things that you wanted, things you wanted to experience or looked forward to. No, well, I used to do, I, I, I wrote my dad a lot too. I mean, I, I wrote him because that's like one soldier to the next and you know, we had something in common. When I left for Vietnam, my first tour, when I said goodbye to him, inside I knew I would never see him again. I don't know why. It was just intuitively, I said, this will be the last time I see you. What do you think about intuition versus uh, logic? Your conscious mind versus your emotion? Well, I just gave you an instance. Here I am right. getting a call, and I, and I just I had the answer. I ask you this because I was messaging Emily and my father yesterday. They were asking me if I was going to vote for John Ossoff. I said, no, I'm not voting. Because my intuition's telling me no. Well, Logically, I don't believe I could ever know the ins and outs of how someone's going to behave in the political that's landscape. That's not the point. That's not the point. What's the point? The point is there's a bigger picture. There's a bigger picture. So I have, to choose, I have to choose a piece that will represent this bigger piece? That's right. In other words, the Republican Party today is a far right, uh, in many cases, you know, whether you're, and I'm talking about social issues. I'm talking about whether it be women's right to choose. I'm talking about gay rights. I'm talking about all that stuff. Do They're you off think there's a way around this system? 
Is there no, a way no, but it? you can't. But you vote for one of them. But, but by not voting, you're really voting for one of those guys. But by voting, you're voting for the political system. I'm asking if you think there's a better way around it. No. There's a better way to operate. No, what I you think... You haven't thought about it? I think... No, I think uh, uh, you could say uh, uh, vote for the lesser of two evils. Uh, vote for your particular... In other words, one party represents your values. Another party represents... So what's the goal? I, I think the goal would be is equality, right? In all aspects of life. Equality. Everybody should be equal, yeah. Right. Is there a better way to approach it than a political party system? Well, they have a different system in England, but I don't know if they, they got do. the same problem. They have a parliamentary system. Parliament. That's right. In other words, they choose they choose the prime minister out of the parliament. Wouldn't, so, wouldn't the way I perceive it is it's almost as if the grounds in which we form this country with the party system and the the guessing and check or the checks and balances, all those things, were perfect considering the time when a man's word held meaning and value and weight. And over time, things have changed. Over time, things have become into an entertainment system or a, a power brokering system. Do you think they've really changed? <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just wondering if, but I'll tell if you the this. goal me, is equality me, and freedom. Let's give me an example. Give me an example. I personally believe, and I consider myself really a moderate. I really do. I personally believe, because what I've observed over the country, uh, the world, that everybody should have health care. I think that's a... In this country, where we progressed, it's it's a right for everybody to have it, without question. Which is interesting, is everybody does have the right to have it. No, no, no. Someone gets hurt, someone gets in a wreck, ambulance shows up and treats you. In moments of crisis, it's true. Except but they say you're What we're saying is we don't pay for it. Well, yeah. Everybody shouldn't have well, to pay by, for it. Well, not by that. Well, I mean, we pay for each other. That's right. I right. Say, that's the idea, idea of car insurance is everybody pays, pays for in. each other. Yeah. That's right. And, and, and I think that's, that's... If you legally have to have car insurance, it makes sense that you would legally have to have health insurance. So I, I, I get the health insurance thing, but, but I'm, I'm more wondering about the nature, the philosophy of freedom. The philosophy of having well, choice much, in your life to dictate your own reality. Well, a choice, a choice. There's so much in this umbrella of government. There's so much going on that the common person, me and you included, just don't know. We never, we never know. It. We don't know what we don't know. But the point is, is you uh, can. Uh, uh, it's like when you discuss religion with somebody. Right. I say you can discuss religion fine. But I said, as far as religion goes, don't get in your my face with your religion. If it helps you get through the day and it works out for you, that's fine. But don't try to transfer it to me. Our entire infrastructure is set up upon the basis of government, though. There's no escaping it. The, the, the reason we can well, sit here and be that's comfortable... That's why we have roads. Yeah, I can drive back to my house because of when, it. When, when they said that in the campaign, that... The, it's not like religion. It's, it's, it's not, not like, like saying... It's not like... American business built all that themselves, the infrastructure and, and all the stuff to get to their business and, you know, and all that other, air traffic control. It didn't just happen. I think something happens when you start, when you start the idea of a community or a town yeah. and everyone joins together to make the town the best town it can be and all of a sudden we've got colonies and we've got states. I just think that along the way the translation of well, what do you have, the anarchy? betterment has anarchy? been muddied up. No, it's just been muddied up. It's well, yeah, it's confusing. There's no question about it. And of course, you know what the best kind of government is? A benevolent dictatorship.
<laughs> what does that mean? You got a dictator who who doesn't lock people up. You know, you come to him. He's like he's like King Solomon. You know, and, uh, you know he settles the issues basis of its merits and all that stuff. The problem is when the dictator dies, then you got somebody else taking over. Like, example. Well, the, Plato and Socrates had ideas for for philosopher kings. That yeah, were, it's the same thing. Benevolent moral justices that's right, on that's equality. Right, that's right. That's right. You think it's something like that's possible? No. <laughs> because right, sometimes this, a king dies. This is the last question I want to ask. Okay. So you you're mentioned when you were in the first tour that when people would, would die, you guys would do a ceremony later. Um, well, I mean, we, 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 but you don't stop the war without a ceremony. We would do well, it when we get when we had a little stand down or something where we get. What did you see in the eyes of the soldiers in their body movements in their emotional states when stuff like that would well, happen? All these people had uh, had relationships with the people that died. Exactly. So, so you saw different different ways. No, normally, it was after the event happened, uh, that kind of thing. But you know, you're you're exactly right. It's 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 really. Uh, it's really tough to describe because when you see people who are the same squad, you know, for a long time, everybody knew everybody's shortcomings, strong point, everything. They know who they could trust on point. They know who they couldn't trust on point. You really had a binding relationship. Like this guy who I sent you that note was 19 years old when he was in that fire base with me. And I got him a medal for it. I don't remember putting him in for it, but I did because he got it. And uh, he was 19 years old. He's 69 years old now with grandchildren. <laughs> so there's three there's three emotions that I'm thinking of. There's fear. There's anger. There's two emotions I'm thinking of. Fear and anger. And I'm thinking of the radio guy you're talking to. Yeah. Fear, anger, and then I guess kind of reflective, reflective yeah. sadness or something. Yeah. You're hearing the dude's voice confronting his own potential. Oh, you get frustration. 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 I mean, here's a guy calling out. He, yeah, he, and 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 nothing you could do. Just like so, it's 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 confrontation with powerlessness or lack of control. That's right. You like you lose it, your friend in the field. It, it happens every day. When I'm a guardian ad litem and I see a kid having a problem, and I see the system is not responding, and I call these different people, and all I get is a blank stare. It's frustrating. So you're with troops who all have skin in the game. Are they are they talking about what's how they're feeling, what's going on? Are they drinking beers? Are they are they punching things? Are they are they clenching their fists? What are they doing? They're smoking a lot of cigarettes. I'll tell you. Smoking a lot of cigarettes. Cigarettes were free because they used to. But did you notice any of them huddled up sometimes? No. No. Of course, I didn't see. I was. I wasn't in a position where I was like sleeping with the third platoon, you know, on a on a normal basis. So they might have another. They could have another perspective than I did. You know, because we're we're looking at it from different situations. So, from what I understand of the Marines I've interviewed and talked to, is is they they basically take the experience of losing their comrade inwardly and say that's what we signed up for. Oh yeah, the, we're the, here. That's right. We took the king. It's showing. almost it's almost like it reinforces the dragon. So we, 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 within we, within the troops. We took the king. They say 
oh, you're going here and you're going there. She said, I took the king's shilling. And that's a, that's a throwback to even the Napoleonic Wars. When you took the king's shilling, you were, in fact, giving him your life to use. Can you talk about how they trained you to address this, the, the mortality issue, how, how you were trained leading up to combat? The mostly, uh, I think Dave can trust you because I went to the infantry school basic course. I went to the infantry school advanced course. What they do is they train you on the tools of the trade so that you know the professional stuff to do. They, uh, we talk, uh, they talk about, they do a lot of talking about leadership and that kind of thing. And they usually have a guy teaching it that has the Medal of Honor in one arm, you know, so that makes an impression right away. He was a good instructor. But the idea, if you know your profession, if you know how to set up the mortar, if you know how to set up a perimeter, if you know how to read a map, if you know how to do this but stuff. This is one of those things that I, I just don't see how someone could know until they're in it. Oh, no, they can death. train you Confining for that. death. Like how, no, like, no, death they can't teach you about. But they kind, from what I understand, they kind of do in the in the sense that they make it the reality in training, well, boot they, camp training, they, like you're, you're, the guy next to you is going to die. Oh, well, no, well, not, not in that aspect. They, Some they, of they, what they do is they talk to you about your responsibility is to the mission and the guys you're with. It's an unsaid thing. Nobody ever said that 30% of you are going to die or whatever. Nobody ever said that. What they do is what they do is talk about professionalism and what you owe to the guy soldier who's next to you. You don't want to fail him. Why do people do what they do? Because they don't want to embarrass the other's people. So they didn't give you a course in the officer school about how to, no, how, to, how, to lead, how to lead death. No, they, they never teach they that. They never teach that, but they teach how to like lead. That's something that, you, that no. would be for a good discussion. No, no you never bring that up. I never had a discussion like that. Really? Ever. If we did, I, I don't remember. I, I never. Mean, it's never been brought up. You never even bring it up. You bring it up that the mission... It's not, the, it's not mission, that people are avoiding it. It's not the people that are avoiding that discussion. It just never comes up because it's replaced by if you're a professional and do your job and take care of your people, however the chips fall. And it goes back to the thing. If you take the, when you take the well, king shilling, you're, you're, you're putting your life on your line. for the yeah, Everyone knows when you go in the military, the reason why we get the pay, the pension, all that stuff is because, I mean, you could die. So to talk about it before you even go in there, Every one of my combat missions I went to, I didn't bring up, but I had a system that if I knew if someone passed, I knew what I was going to do. I knew, different than my dad, I knew with me, because I've lost, and I, I was going to call up the wife, if they're like in Korea, I lost two people. I called up the family, I talked to them, I knew I was going to fly out there to go explain to them, and there were systems, but I brought the whole unit together, talked to them, and I said, we're going back to work. I mean, there's no stopping. I mean, we didn't take a day off, didn't do anything. I go, it just, it's the nature of our job is you can't, we had a memorial service and we, yeah. for that minute we had a memorial service like the next two days later. We did it, we said eulogies, we did it, but then we kept on working. What was the narrative that you told yourself 
when you knew you had to make the phone call to those families? What were the things that got that you told yourself uh, to get through it? Uh, for me, my hardest part was telling the wife because I had to bring the wife in and tell her who, who she had just seen her husband three hours before because she was in the Army too. Then he went out to do a test flight and him and the warrant officer had maintenance problems and went down. And she was about to leave to to leave to go back to the States in a couple of days. She was done with her tour and her husband was about three weeks behind and her husband was dead. And so when I got the call that it happened, uh, it, it, the, the, I'm not supposed to tell her. It's supposed to be somebody else, but because we didn't have official word yet. But the problem is in the, in the media, the Korean newspapers was there and it was she already off the street. It was already in the papers. And I was very afraid that, and it was already on CNN too. And so I brought, I called up, Brandy was her name. She was getting her ticket. I said, hey, Brandy, come on by. I need to talk to you. And I had the chaplain ready and I had Gloria ready in the other room. And so she walks in the room and I, I didn't know, how, I go, Brandy, I don't know how to say this, but uh, 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 you're, God, what was his name? Got a I just spoken to him the day before too, Norman, last night Captain Norman, and I go he was in an accident and she goes oh no, and then she just hugged on to me for about five minutes she wouldn't let go, and she was crying she was, I mean I was they had no kids no nothing but he had died, and uh, and and then uh, then about five minutes later, uh, she just wanted to get a hold of her the the. Uh, uh, Kevin, Kevin Norman, Kevin's mother, and to let him know because she was very concerned because it was on CNN already. And his was the only type of aircraft that we flew. So we knew, and it was about midnight in the States when I found out. And uh, so I finally got a hold of the mom. But before I talked to the mom, I wanted to talk to the brother, her, his brother. I got a hold of his brother who was three hours away. I didn't want to tell her mom because I thought it would be better coming from the brother. And so I called up the brother, told him he was angry. He was throwing things around. I go, it was a mechanical problem. I, I, I wanted you to hear directly from me. Uh, do you think it's best if I call up your mother right now? He goes, no. Let me drive through the night and go tell her. I want to be the one speaking to her. So uh, he drove through the night to go tell his uh, mom that the, and then no lie about the the official way the mother's supposed to know is through a, uh, uh, a casualty affairs officer. I had that when I was at Lehigh. I uh, Part of our job was if we lost a person in the Allentown area, that area, somebody from my ROTC detachment had to go with a chaplain. And the reason, why they, the, the reason why they had the casualty affairs officer, Adam, is because they don't want the unit to be the one telling it because that first person that tells you you're just gonna dislike that person forever. So if you bring somebody in, so the, the I talked to the casualty affairs officer before, unheard of, the, the mom, believe it or not, had not known yet, but she saw the article, the son wasn't there yet. So the articles were all in the paper. She woke up at seven o'clock in the morning and saw C-12 goes down, two deaths. And there was only five people that she C-12. So she just knew something was wrong. The, the, uh, the uh, the, the mom and the wife, because I was talking to both of them at the same time. The, uh, not the wife, but the, both, both uh, the wife of the warrant officer lived in Fort Bragg, 
and the mother of the of Kevin lived in California. So I got a hold of California. That was done. I talked to the California mother. Everything was, I mean, not good, but I talked to them. My real issue was Fort Bragg because the wife, they'd been married 16 years, two kids. One was a baby, like three months old. And, uh, and, and I had to get a hold of her. And, but I couldn't tell her on the phone. This one I couldn't. I had to have the casualty assistance officer do it. So I talked to them on the phone. I go, she doesn't know anything. As soon as you talk to her, call me back because I want to talk to her because I'm more than allowed to. So they knock on the door. They have a chaplain. They have a career, all in class A's. She said she knew deeply religious. She said as soon as they walked in, she knew. So I get on the phone. Uh, three minutes later, no one to call me up. About three minutes I call the guy. I go, hey. Get, uh, so I, call, I called up the, the, the wife five minutes later because they hadn't called me up yet. So I call them up. I go, is Mrs. Nor- is, is, uh, Mrs. Uh, Snow there? Miss Snow. This is Miss Snow. Uh, man, this is David Bromwitz from Korea. Uh, Colonel David Bromwitz says, uh, is anybody there? Yeah, what's wrong? No, man, I, I'm mad. I go, man, can you, can you put the person who's there with you right now on the phone? He gets on the phone and goes, sir, I told her, but she's the calmest person I've ever seen. Get her back on the phone. I go, ma'am, I, I just want to say I'm sorry. I, 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 I wasn't. He's with Jesus. I mean, you know, she was very deeply religious and... and and, and I talked to her every day for a year, Miss, the Mrs. Norman. To this day, we talk all the time. Uh, and I went to both of them about four, three months later. I flew back and I had to get the brief on what happened. Both of them were good. I, I think I handled it about as good as you could because both of them are very close to me still because they appreciate me, you know, uh, you know, being up front. But Amy Snow... When Amy's daughter graduated from high school three years later, two years later, me and his entire unit from Fort Bragg, about 50 of us, went to the high school graduation about a year, about an hour away in uniform. And we marched in front of the whole graduating class in front. And she gave the talk, thanking us for being there for her father because her father couldn't be there. But we were there representing her father. Well, you know, I went to her college graduation four years later, six years later, college graduation, and she's now got a PhD. The the daughter. What? I don't don't know, but but and the the the, the one that was three months old. God, well, it was it was two the 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 it was twelve August two thousand and three. I'd only been in command for a couple months. It has been fourteen years now. Since it's happened, and Amy Amy Snow's gotten married again. So's Brandy Norman. Brandy's had kids. Amy already had the two kids, and we talk. Amy Snow and I about every three months. She calls up. How's it going? And uh, Brandy about once a year because she needs to get on with her life and forget about me. But uh, that was difficult. I mean, Gloria was right there for, with me though. When I physically told her, then I went outside. And I had I had to make a lot of phone calls. And I had, to, I had to be on the phone. Finally, I got a hold of Mrs. Norman. She talked to the mom. And, you know, we did. And, and I wanted her to stay for the memorial service. The next day, she wouldn't stay. She left that next morning. And I remember I went. When they flew the body in, I was there when it flew into Seoul. And I asked the coroner, could you give me the wedding ring? Because that's all she asked for, the wedding ring. And before she left that next morning, I gave her a hug. And I put her wedding ring back on her phone. His wedding ring back on. 
Well, you know, it, well, it, I want to I want to say one one thing real quick um, about that. When when I start to think about the casualties and and generational gap between you two, yeah, I mean it, it seems like it's less of a casualty rate compared to well, the, and World the reason II, why is Vietnam. he had fifty three, fifty four thousand Vietnam, yeah, and, and my first tour in Iraq, we probably lost two hundred people total in the so, whole army. So all of everything you just said, it couldn't have happened. All the phone I mean, no, the logistic no, nightmare. Was, couldn't okay, that well, was uh, his, communications. And yeah. the media wasn't big with him. So all the, I mean, you had Walter Cronkite and stuff. But, but nowadays, it was 24 hours old. It was 24 hours. Mine, anything that happens now in a war, Trump lost the, the Navy SEAL guy, his only loss he's had. You wouldn't have found that. That would have been, would have been no one would have known. It would have been top secret. No one would have known. Now, every single thing that happens. I'll tell you an interesting thing in the, in the leadership area. A good friend of mine who Dave knows is Bob Knight. Uh, Bob uh, worked for me in Germany. Knew him since that time, and he uh, he commanded the uh, the same uh, gun platoon in Vietnam on two different tours, and uh, he won the Distinguished Service Cross, which is just under the Medal of Honor, and uh, hell of a pilot, hell of a guy. Anyway, and he was living in Melbourne, and we had a relationship all the time. We had lunch together, you know, and good friends. But he died. And he's, uh, his funeral is in, uh, in, at Arlington. And he's, he's on a stir. I knew all of them, you know, I really knew them. But anyway, I drove up to Washington to the funeral. And Drew, his wife was there. He has three children that are still alive. They were there. Uh, but 52 people that served with him in Vietnam showed up for that funeral. That was a platoon leader. Can you imagine what kind of leader the guy was? Yeah. To have, these guys came from all over the country. You know, some had good jobs, some had no jobs. You know, it was just remarkable. So what do you, let, me, let me ask one, one more question while we're on the subject. You know, there's the media thing you're talking about, there's good and bad. Yeah. The, the problem is with, with, the good part about that is he never had to worry about the media or anything. He just did his job. Yeah. Me, everything's political. When I, as a brigade commander, everything like that, when the, when the C-12 went down, I had a great boss that just said, because that, that was on all the papers, CNN, everything. If I would have had the wrong boss, I would have been so busy trying to you know figure out what happened, how to do it, and I would have taken heat. I could have gotten fired because I lost two people. Oh, yeah. uh, but I had, I had a boss that just said, hey, whatever you need, just let me know. Uh, you know, if things happen, but I, I'll tell you, in some unit commanders, if it happened, you'd have been toast because well, the media was e out even, there. Even when that instance I told you about the time when I was told to relieve the guy, you know, to get off the helicopter and go and relieve this guy, some commander, if I would have come back, I said, I didn't do it. He said, you history. Which means dad's career would have been over. It would have been shot. He would have Or been, the instance where I had those guys looting. And I didn't lie about it and say it never happened. If, 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 do, and that is, you, it's another instance where you, the guy should have said, could have said, do you you're, know history, you're disloyal. Be, do you know up to about two years ago, and they even did, Leah went and uh, did an interview for the military. One of the questions they asked was, have you done marijuana? I mean, what a stupid question to ask. You mean Kayla? Kayla. What a stupid question. I mean, they, why, every, is a, why is every, it a stupid question? Because every soldier lies. 
You start off right off the bat. I've asked every one of my soldiers, when you got that, they go, because they wouldn't take you two years oh, ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. you're asking a question. Now, if you add uh, speed or no one's going to tell set, the truth, set, why would you set them up right at the beginning to lie? I think I'm about the only person in the history of the world that ever, ever smoked marijuana, ever. But most kids have all tried it. It's just kid thing. Everyone has. So when I ask the recruiter, why would you ask that? They go, because they make us It's on the checklist. But if they say they... What's that? We don't know why. Don't know why. It's stupid. It's on a checklist. It's on a checklist. And they should not ask. I don't mind if they ask. First of all, if they interviewed you, you're a bad one because you're going to tell the truth. Well, no, no, no. But but if they interviewed you right now, going to the military and says... Have you ever taken amphetamines or speed or cocaine? Yeah, I mean, who's gonna say yes? Nobody. As a matter of fact, even it's stupid. If they're trying to find out if someone's a drug addict or an alcoholic or has mental pro- mental health issues, there's different. They're gonna be lying because they have those issues. I anyway. know. So, so they asked Lee, Kayla. Yeah, I get that. Did, did you? And I asked her. I go. What happens if she said, "Yeah, I tried it." They go. Well, we'd ask her a lot of questions about it, but she should probably be okay. Why would you ask it? Marijuana. It's really, it's really. It's stupid. It's really, what you do is you, you, you're, uh, you're setting yourself up for somebody to lie to you. Because nobody, if if everybody knew it was on the checklist, and they knew it was a disqualifier, if they're going to tell the truth, they wouldn't even come in. They they've added <laughs> on. I'll give you a, a top secret clearances. Top top secret clearances. You get lots of interviews, and and uh, one of the questions asked was. Had you ever seen a, porn, a porn, pornographic movie? And, you know, you, you answer it. Most everyone, of course, has, of course. And, but the answer is if you did, they, they, they'd ask you a series of questions. Well, see if you, what a stupid question. I mean, so many, the, the marijuana thing really bothers me. Why yeah. would you ask it? Just give them a drug test. I remind me, my, my father used to serve on the OCS board. And he used to ask a young soldier coming in who wanted to go to OCS. He said, have you ever gone to a burlesque show? And if the guy says no, he says, what kind of man are you? The guy, the guy, the, the guy was put in a position where it's either stupid. answer was not right. You know? <laughs> and my father used to get a kick out of that because that would not be a breaker. But the point is, that would sort of... Uh, I'm gonna get the guy, you know, go. Wait, I, I want to ask one more, more question. You keep on having no, more just, questions. Go ahead, go ahead. Just go ahead. A, well, this is something I was thinking about the other day. Okay. This doesn't even have to be on here. I, just I don't wanna, care. I just want to know what you guys think. This is the philosophy, because we're talking about death, philosophy of it. Yeah. I, I work with a guy at this restaurant who's 19 years old. <laughs> and he is, or he's 20 actually. And he is emotionally intellectual. Like he's emotionally sound. He's aware. Yeah. He's an adult. Like, we're yeah. equals. Okay. Like, and I was thinking about, like, if I was on the Titanic yeah. or somebody held a gun and said, okay, now's your time to go. Yeah. And I was thinking about, oh, man, like, he, he wouldn't have, if he's only 20, I've got 10 years that he could get to experience, right? Like, it should be me that goes. I don't think that way, but. As I was thinking it, I was like, man, what if, what if my last 10, my last 10 years are just kind of like a muddy, you know, it just got me to here. Like it's, it's me here now. Why do you think that way? I never think because that. I always try to figure out the, You're what old. the point of memory is. Why aren't you just thinking forward? That's, I never, I never, I, I th- what am I going to do the next 10 years? No, 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 that's, that's the point. Because when I, when I was thinking that, like all I really think about is today and the next, and like the next thing I want to yeah. do. And you learn from your past. 
Hopefully. The, I think the past is just a subconscious, like, nah, I, you don't, you, bank. You learn from your past. I think well, you learn pa- from it, but... I like, think the past the, is baggage. Well, so here's the Good question. baggage, no What's baggage. the philosophy then? Like, is somebody, like somebody's 32 years old and another person's 22 years old and you've got a, a gun that's going to fire any second, like, who's the one that... that there was I a law and order that. on that. Because I don't think time is, is, a, is a good measurement yeah, Now, if you ask Gloria that, if you ask, because she's asked that, if you've asked Gloria that, you're on the Titanic and it's me or a kid, yeah. she's going to go... Hey, you've lived a good life. The kid's younger. It's living. I don't think that way. I don't think those situations exist. Why well, would the I question, even... yeah, the question does exist. A guy is 92 years old. Should you spend the money on his re- replacement heart or should that money go to uh, health care he... for children? I mean, there's only so much money. You and know, that's, when, that's, when no, does... That, that's, if you have the money to be able to do it, like if you ask, uh, I'm in sure pain. They can give you about another year to live, or they can make it really calm for me and I could die. I'd rather die. I'd rather you make it as comfortable as possible. Why would I want to live another year in so pain? That's, see, that's where this question gets easy when it's about you. No, yeah. no. But it's when it's about another person. No, that's but different. I'm saying... Yeah, that I'm would saying, be difficult. But now, you're a good question. If that was about Gloria... Yeah. I don't know. What if you I couldn't second, make that decision for when Gloria. You were, second, you, you were talking about... Uh, uh, about I just believe, you are talking about government what, what I was trying to say here is like in terms of the moment of awakening experience that we're sharing right now, in terms of this, all of my past isn't really real, as real as this. So when I see my friend who's 20, yeah. and I think like, wow, like we're basically in the same spot together. You know, I don't feel any further ahead or further behind or anything. It's just we're here. But your tomorrow is different than his. Everything when I'm not with him, everything. That's is what different. I mean. That's yeah. what I mean. You're too deep. I am too. Like, deep. It's kind of like, like the, what you said, like you the, said, the Ossoff thing. It, yeah, to, to me, it's not a reality. You're, first of all, a reality of I'm not going to vote for anybody I don't know is, is stupid. You're not going to know anybody. Who are you going to know? I've, I've never voted for anybody I knew. It's really, well, well how is that stupid? Not voting I for think somebody. Then you don't know anybody. Right. Wow. So you're not going to vote. Why am to, I going to, I also think the system could be better. No, I agree. Well, you're but, not going to. So what you do is you study what they say and you pick the guy that that, that so you think is the closest to your the values. Re, the reason this is happening right now is because I haven't put my energy towards studying those things. But there's other things I'd rather study. So like the, the whole conflict with Emily, I guess, and my dad was like, they're not voting for me. I could do something today and use my energy to research <laughs> things that what, matter to me. What was the question they asked you? They told me that I should be voting for John Ossoff. Well, tell them to mind their own business. They should be telling you who to vote for. <laughs> well, that's uh, a, they were trying to influence that's me. A well, they like Ossoff, but yeah. I've, I've seen Ossoff. He's far, 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 far left. He's an idiot. I mean, uh, he's except way think, to the left. Except he for the guy like who, frat boy. except for the guy who he's replacing. Who's I don't know who's replacing. <laughs> the Is guy it? who's now a secretary of health. Uh, in, well, that's like, the guy he's yeah, replacing. Who's who was making money? Off I don't know stock. enough about. I haven't studied him, but I've seen his interviews, and, and and I I've seen what he talked. He talks good. He's very young. She doesn't have that much experience, but I have to study who it is. The presidential elections. And the people I vote for, I always study it 
to see if my, they, they meet my values. It's just or, so fishy, though. Like, like, I'm seeing these ad campaigns, and I'm going like, well, this they're is a face. Of, they're accusing Ossoff of being a Pelosi. fellow traveler with Ben Laden. Every time yeah, I, that's crazy. Every that's time crazy. I think about checking a vote for a person, I recognize that when's the last the, time you voted? just the strings no, on this. When's the last time you voted? I, I don't think you have. No, I have. I did. I voted, uh, I think it was 2008. Who did, did you know the person? I voted for Barack Obama. Okay. You didn't know him? Yeah, but I wanted to see a black president. I really did. Okay, well that's good enough reason to me. Yeah. I don't I don't I don't fault you for that. But yeah. I have But that was the of, only reason. Well, you really? voted. I don't think my kids have ever voted. Oh. See, I, I Leah said she voted this time. Well I know who she voted for, she voted for. But you know what there's no doubt Leah voted but for. But I'll tell you, I think I I think it's bigger than the individual. I, I think it has to be what generally the political party represents, because they fall in the line usually. Wait, let's sign out. You want to say, you want to say something? We're closing it out. Okay, it's done. Don't eat the yellow snow. Hey, Dad, Dad don't eat the yellow snow. Uh, send my warmest regards. Uh, no, that was a good experience. I mean, but you've never. Why is it? While I was growing up, you never talked about Vietnam with me. It just never came up. No, even never, when I, I when never, I when I asked you, ne- you talked about everything else. But you never ever I, talked know, to Vietnam. I, it never. I didn't have a hang up about it. I just. You just yeah, did. No, I just. You know, in fact, all the stories you told me, I've heard. Sure. In between yeah. the years. Yeah. You didn't tell me anything that I really didn't know. Not new. Yeah, but well, I first thought that you all, just didn't like, like talking. It's like this: you're 12 years old. You're 12 years old, okay? And I, you do something, and I'll say, "Why did you do that, Adam?" I don't know. <laughs> That's I still now. feel the same way. Uh, <laughs> you know, am I right? Am yeah. I right? You say, I and, you, and the funny is, you don't know. I mean, it's something inside, uh, or maybe you know, but you don't know. You know, you you can't say it or whatever. Like you can't no. say why you didn't talk about it. That's right. You're saying? Yeah, you just never. Uh, it wasn't an emotional thing, you know, like that. I remember. Came. I remember when your grandpa. Because no one ever talked to you about the birds and the bees, you know, about the sex and stuff. But I remember somehow, some way, my mom, when dad was in Vietnam, wanted uh, the counselor to talk to me about it. And he brought up, so I, don't, I vaguely remember it. But I remember when my dad came back, dad all of a sudden went, let's go play tennis. Dad never played tennis with me. And I go, what's up? So we were there for like five minutes, hit the ball against the thing, we came in, dad goes, do you have any questions? And I go, about what? He goes, you know. I go, no. And he goes, you know about girls. If you have any questions about girls, you can ask me. I go, okay, Dad, is there something you want to know? I mean, you know, I was <laughs> like, learned guys, in the street where everybody else That was it. it. I mean, that was, that was our that was our burden. Now, we learned in now, the street where Now, all knows. three of our kids, like Jacob, Leah, and Kayla, I've talked to them. They say they don't remember it, but I do. I remember to giving so them a talk. So it didn't mean anything. Cause yeah, I but Dad's thing was playing tennis. He goes, you want to know anything about girls? I go, no. Nah, I got that. <laughs> All right, I'm done. Do you know how I learned about girls? I don't know. Mom? My, my father, no, my father <laughs> said when I was in Germany, I guess I was 13 years old, the Army used to show these VD movies. <laughs> I was scared of how he, he sent me to one of those. Man, that's scary. That was my that. education. Do I get a copy of that? No, yeah. he's going to get it. It'll be your father's It'll day. It'll be a CD, right? And a USB wristband. What does that mean? It'll have the file like this. 
on it, USB, so you can plug it into any. Oh, you can plug it in your car, plug oh, it into the no, computer. But no, is there a picture with it? Uh, there's gonna be a logo. So you take it out, oh. and then you can just plug it in the computer. 